0: This is The Ethicist, a podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Anthony Appiah teaches philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony.
1: Thanks very much, Amy.
0: And Kenji Yoshino teaches law, also at New York University. I'm happy to have you here, Kenji.
2: Always glad to be here, Amy.
0: Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about confronting racism in a small community, sharing genetic concerns with your family, and how to give generously and mindfully. And here's our first question.
1: Dear ethicists, I live in a small rural
2: town. At the local garage, the owner has photocopied and displayed a poster that he apparently thinks is clever. It proclaims to picture the most useful cell phone to have with you, which is a handgun that has a cell phone keypad in its handle. It then names the cities where this might be useful, naming cities that are primarily Afro-American. The owner is a nice guy, not a virulent racist. He probably does not realize that the poster is offensive or why it is overtly racist. What should have been my response? Name withheld.
0: Oh, I think the garage owner probably does realize that it's offensive. That would be part of its charm. That would be why he has the poster displayed. Um, Now, he may not feel that it would be offensive to the people in the local garage who are going to be seeing the poster. I think he probably thinks that it will be appealing to them, which is why he put it up. But the foundation of the appeal is racist, and that has probably not lost on him. And I think, as we've discussed before, um, at other times in response to other letters, an engaged bystander can make a real difference, um, especially in a situation like this. There are different ways that you might approach it, and you certainly might want to look and see where the exits are, and you also <laughs> might want to think to yourself, where is the next best garage? Because that's probably where you're going to end up going. Um, but it's possible to sort of play dumb and say, hey, what does that poster mean? And then the garage owner will say, hey, it's a joke. And then you say, oh, it's funny? What's the joke? And you can certainly start that way. And if the response is heated and unpleasant, it's probably time to go. Um, But it might still be worth at least... Beginning a conversation about it. Unfortunately, in my experience, most people are not like Eleanor Roosevelt, whom I admired so much, because she took criticism of her own racism so seriously that she not only always apologized directly and promptly without any excuse, but when it was pointed out to her, she would write to all of her friends and family in her wide social circle to point out the offensive thing that she had done or said and encourage them not to do the same.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree that one of the main mechanisms by which we're making our culture less racist and sexist is by people calling each other out in various ways on it. And especially in the case of uh, of, of racism, I think it's really important for uh, white people to call out other white people um, when, when they do these things. I, I'm... I confess i don't know enough about life in this small town to know at what level of self-consciousness this thing is but i think the fact that i mean if if the guy doesn't realize that it's offensive that's that's a problem too and it's a it's a problem about race relations in our country if it's possible for someone to put something like this up and not recognize what that uh there's a racist uh um, element in what's going on so I think, you know, we're only going to be able to to do something about this if we all agree in our separate ways and from our different social positions that we are going to be the people who, on the occasions where we usefully can, point it out and in a, in as, you know, uh, gentle at least to begin with a way as possible, uh, say to people, you know, what, what do you mean by that? And, and then, yes, I- I- educe from them. Uh, an account. And I think I think just trying to explain why it's funny will probably uh, bring to consciousness for him what well, the problem is if it hasn't, uh, if it isn't already at the front of his mind.
2: Yeah, There's nothing deflates a joke like having to explain it. Right. Yeah. right.
0: I mean, even if it's a really great joke. And um, in this case, I think, you know, as I said, sort of playing dumb or saying, oh, what does that mean? Oh, why is that funny? Um, I think we're
2: all in agreement. I, I think the only other two things I would add would be First, uh, the person who is the consumer, the customer, is in a much better position to call out the sign than the employees at the garage are. So on that ground of being the, the cheapest cost avoider, if you will, um, that's a separate ground in which you may want to intervene. And then the other thing is, I can't resist um, pointing out that you might want to take a what might be deemed to be a more friendly approach and say that there are cases in which um, signage like this it would probably have to be much more extreme. But I'm thinking of the pornography cases where sex discrimination cases are brought by employees against their employers for having pornography, and sometimes the employer loses in those cases. So uh, you might actually even frame this as helping the garage owner to avoid liability and saying, you know, you might be creating a racially harassing atmosphere here, and you could be the loser for it. So just a heads up. Uh, so I think that's a non-confrontational uh, way to do it.
0: I don't think that's non-confrontational. <laughs> I don't think there's, a, <laughs> don't think there's a, a problem with it. I would again say, and check where the exits are, and make sure you know how to get out of there and where, you're, where the other mechanic is. Because it seems to me, given what he's described about the settings, saying... You know, I just want to point out to you in a friendly and helpful way that having a poster like this may lead your employees to sue you. Um, I, I wish I thought that the garage, opener, garage owner would say, oh, thank you. That's so helpful. But that, that strikes me as very unlikely as an outcome.
2: But at least allies you with his interests, right? What, what you're, not, you're not sort of Only saying. if he's
0: an idiot. <laughs> I don't know.
2: I mean, I, I think that a lot of sexual harassment in this country, there's actually a really fine book about this, uh, is, is really super compliant. And, and is, does a lot of the sexual harassment policies that companies have implemented, these tend to be Fortune 500 companies rather than small garages. So that's a point to you, Amy. But a lot of the sexual harassment policies that were implemented were far over and above what was required under law. And it was really HR managers using their own kind of moral heft and going to the employer and saying, you know, there's some danger you could get sued here and it's also the right thing to do. Some combination of those two messages led us to. But
0: that's the HR manager at the company that is facing the possibility of a suit because of the posters, right?
2: Yeah, but it's not, it's not clear to me that it would come differently to my ears as the owner, whether it was a consumer or my own HR manager. I mean, the, the message is this is not in your own best interest to do because we actually have federal legislation on point.
1: I do think that trying to find some way that isn't too confrontational, whatever that is, and maybe our letter writer knows, knows him better than we do and can think of <laughs> that for him or herself. Um, I think finding some non-confrontational way is probably the most helpful thing. And I think even if it blows up the first time, even if it blows up immediately, there's the possibility that on reflection, the guy will see that um, you were right. And we'll um, take the thing down, but also perhaps be a little bit more reflective about about his own attitudes, which is, as I say, a matter of all of us helping each other to move along here, whether it's racism or sexism.
0: I prefer your views of the garage owner to my own. I like the way you guys see it. Um, We should probably dive into the next letter.
3: Dear ethicists, last year while pregnant I was tested to see if I was a carrier for cystic fibrosis. I was stunned to find out that I was a carrier. No one in my family, even back generations, has ever had CF. My results came back when I was 12 weeks pregnant, and while we would have kept the pregnancy regardless, it was a heart-rending two weeks while we waited for my husband's results. He was negative. If you are not familiar with genetics, what this means is that at least one of my parents is a carrier, has one copy of the gene, and that my brother and sister each could have a 25% chance or a 50% chance of being a carrier. Because everything turned out okay, I have not told my parents or siblings about the test findings. My parents would feel incredibly guilty if they knew. However, my brother and his wife are thinking of starting a family, and I am torn as to whether to suggest to my brother that he take the test first. Deciding to know your genetic status is an incredibly personal decision, but I would also feel very bad if I had this info and he and his wife ended up both being carriers and had a baby who had CF. Is it more ethical to withhold the information, or to give him this information possibly against his will? Signed, name withheld.
1: This is a really interesting question. And one thing that struck me first, and, and I'm glad that the test turned out okay, by the way, because it is a very serious, I, my brother-in-law works, is a pediatric pulmonologist, works with a lot of cystic fibrosis children, and it's a, it's a really painful thing to watch. So anyway, so I'm glad it turned out okay. And, and so it's a really important question, uh, 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 what you should say uh, to your brother who might have children um, but you asked one question first, which I found a bit puzzling, which was, you said that your parents might feel guilty, but I can't see why they should feel guilty unless they negligently, uh, <laughs> uh, set out to have a child without checking whether they were CF and that wasn't negligent. There's no history of it in the family. They didn't have uh, any particular reason to expect it. Only one in 25 people is likely having to be carrying it. Uh so I don't feel that your parents should feel guilty and I think it's interesting that the first question you ask us to think about is whether you should tell them and I would say um I can't think of any reason not to. Uh it's it's it, it's very artificial I think to keep from them something as important as this. They would expect you to tell them if they knew that you knew this thing. So I would say um I would say yes, uh you should tell your parents too. But you must tell your brother I think. And, there's enough, and this is not because there's a huge likelihood that he will have a CF child. As I said, um, because one of your parents is almost certainly a, a carrier, um, it's quite likely that he has got it. But it's pretty unlikely that his wife has it as well, because as I say, it's not a hugely common uh, thing in the population. So the chances that you will have a niece or nephew who have CF are not hugely high. But still... Uh, the risk is a serious one and your brother and his wife ought to be prepared for it. And the fact that you have this information, which is relevant to them and which they can, by taking a test, um, find out, uh, more about strikes me as something that you ought to tell them. And I think the way, one way to think about it is, this suppose you tell him and he says, why did you tell me? Well, you've got a perfectly good answer to that question. Uh, This is important information. It was important for us uh, when we discovered it. Uh, It may be important for you. You should check. But if you don't tell him and then he discovers later, what will you say to him if he says, why didn't you tell me? I can't think of any reasonable defense at that point. So I think just looking at it from, as it were, what your brother is entitled to expect of you, you've got to tell him, even though it's important to be clear, that the probability is that you won't have a, a, a CF. Uh, nephew or niece, because the background frequency in the population of these uh, mutations is not hugely high.
2: Yeah, I agree, agree with all of that, and especially the bit about the parents. I mean, it seems like this is actually a very happy scenario where, you know, this family has emerged unscathed so far as we can tell uh, from this and uh, can actually continue that into the future with this, armed with this foreknowledge. So I don't see any reason why. The parents would feel guilty. Uh, And then I would also add that with regard to, um, I mean, I would encapsulate this as can you force knowledge of somebody's own genetic makeup on them against their will? That seems to be the core concern here of violating somebody's uh, genetic privacy. And the way I would look at this is that you're not really telling him about his own genetic code insofar as you're not sort of going in and swabbing his cheek and taking that to the DNA lab, right? You're just telling him about your own genetic code and then leading him to draw the obvious inference from that. So uh, I don't really see a violation of his privacy. I feel that you are sharing, you're expanding your own uh, circumference of privacy in order to uh, share with him information about yourself that could be relevant to him.
0: And in this letter, I think... This is the kind of thing we all do. There is the letter writers imagining that the parents would feel incredibly guilty, even though those of us reading the letter think, why would they feel guilty? And it may be that they would feel guilty because they're parents. (laughs) And whenever anything is happening to your children, children certainly expect their parents to feel guilty about it, and they might feel guilty about it. And it's also the thing with the brother— This giving him this information possibly against his wishes, but you have no reason to think that it's against his wishes. And it's not information, as you say, it's not from his cheek swab. It's information about yourself that may have some bearing on him. And it seems to me this is very much one of those golden rule things. Clearly, the letter writer wanted to have this information and would have been very upset if her brother had had this information and chosen not to share it with her. And it seems to me, you know what your wishes would have been, and it sounds like the wishes would have been, please tell me. And I think it's okay to assume that your brother would like at least to have this information without pursuing it any further on his behalf. All right, then we're on to our last question.
4: In October of last year, my friend and I spent 10 days in Nepal, trekking and exploring Kathmandu. Like the rest of the world, we've been so saddened by news of the earthquake and the havoc it has wreaked. My friend and I both donated money to the aid effort through her law firm, which provided matching donations and split the firm's total donations among thoroughly vetted aid organizations. Recently, our trekking guide from our trip to Nepal reached out and asked if we could help him at all with a direct donation. We loved our guide and got to know him well, and I believe him when he says his family is homeless after the earthquake. But my friend and I feel conflicted about the idea of sending money in this way. On the one hand, I don't doubt that any money we gave him would be put to good use. It is obviously needed, and my friend and I could each spare some additional money. On the other hand, I worry about the slippery slope nature of this request. How can we ever give enough? And arguably, any money donated to a reputable aid organization would go further. Is it ethical to make a direct donation to our guide? Is it ethical not to? Signed, name withheld.
2: So I think this is a beautiful question. It's, it's so rich, and it made me reflect on my own uh, practices of uh, giving. So I really appreciate getting it. Um, so I think that it is certainly uh, not unethical to refuse to send the money, but it's perfectly ethical to send the money. Uh, I have to say that I was first reminded of a Patricia Williams' essay uh, in The Alchemy of Race and Rights where she uh, talks about observing a child and his father uh, getting off of a subway, and uh, someone approaches and asks for money, and the child wants to give the uh, man money, and the father says, no, no, to his son, uh, this isn't how we give in our family. And uh, she remembers thinking, you know, there's a very... This is a very abstract notion of philanthropy where a direct appeal is uh, less appealing than, uh, you know, a more uh, kind of abstract or removed uh, form of giving. So I think you're doing both, and I think that that's um, wonderful. With regard to the slippery slope problem, just to tackle that, um, I, I think all of us have this fear, right? Uh, I, I think now of Rousseau who says, um, I've often felt the burden of my own good deeds by the chain of duties they later entailed. Right. So the idea is, generosity can endanger the giver, and we've all experienced this in our lives. Of so we give, and then that seems to create some form of obligation of of, of continued giving. Um, but it seems to me that uh, it, it would be uh, a sad thing if we refuse to even take one step up down that slope uh, when it seems. Uh, that the slope might, might be much more terraced <laughs> than, uh, than we might uh, think it is, uh, given that we could actually refuse and uh, later on down the line. So if you're worried about uh, the, sort of the downstream consequences of your giving now, y- you might give and just make it really clear when you send your donation or when you send the next donation or when you send the third donation, that is, whenever you wish to stop, that uh, you are going to be stopping here and that you wish you could do more. Uh, as you say you do, and that would be an honest thing to say, but uh, this is where it ends.
0: I agree. I love the way you put it about um, it would be terrible to um, be so fearful of this slippery slope that you never put a foot out, you know, and and this letter writer seems, you know, they care and they're making a contribution and they are seeking to find the solid ground of realistic generosity And I think it would be too bad, although they are not ethically ethically obliged to give to their guide, I think it would be too bad if something like the the fear of the slippery slope kept them from donating directly to a man in need whom they like and trust and whom they say that they have no doubt that the money would be put to good use. And so it doesn't seem that that would be a mistake. It's, it is hard to know what giving enough is for each person, but this does not sound like a slippery slope. This sounds like um, a good opportunity to give, and I think it's great, as you say, that the letter writer um, is, cares enough and is planning on making There's more a, than a, one contribution. That's
1: right. There's an interesting sort of background question here, right, which is the balance between what you might call impartial benevolence and partial benevolence uh Mm -hmm. and i think it's a really important point and here i disagree with some of the major writers on this topic in the philosophical tradition i think it's a really important point that it is morally permissible to do things on the basis of our relationships with people that it's not the case that the only proper way to respond when when there's a question of benevolence of this sort is to say well i must maximize uh, the amount of good in the world that I can contribute uh, in an impartial way. I think partiality is part of what we are. I think it's part of our moral natures, and I think when people say, you know, it's as if uh, the 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 way to see what's wrong with this is to point out that most parents know a child who would profit more from the toys they're giving their own children than their own children do. At least most of the parents that I I know do. And that doesn't make it wrong to give toys (laughs) to your children. Certainly, if you live in a community where there are children who are falling below the level of attention and concern that a child is entitled to, all of us in the community, not just the parents, have a responsibility to try and do something about that. But we have a special responsibility to our own children, and we have the right to be partial to them. And similarly, if you know someone in a far-off place who suffered, even though he's surrounded by other people who are suffering the fact that you have this connection with him, a connection of uh, uh, friendship and trust and uh, having had common experience and also of having had to rely on him in the past so that he he was your guide. He was someone who helped you. He, he was being paid, but he, um, uh, nevertheless, he was helping you. Um, I think those are the, exactly the sorts of bases for uh, generosity that are uh, perfectly okay. What's nice about this letter, about you, the letter writer is that you're doing both you've done the impartial sharing of donations through the thoroughly vetted organizations but now you have the opportunity to do the partial thing and i would say um, it, it's part of uh, it there's nothing wrong nothing wrong with that it's, it's it's a good thing so if you feel you can and you want to it is absolutely okay um i think you're i mean i you know, I have a theory about what your general obligation is. I think your general obligation is to, just, is to do your fair share, to make the world a world in which everybody gets a shot at a decent life. Sounds as though you're the kind of person who's already meeting that standard. If everybody had been as conscientious in their response to this uh, uh, crisis in, in, uh, in Nepal as you had been, uh, they'd be back on their feet. Um, and you can't bear the whole burden of the world's suffering alone. You have a right to your own life. You have a right to your partialities. And I think that uh, it seems to me you've got the balance exactly right, and I admire you for it.
2: Yeah, and just to riff off of that, uh, Anthony, you know, I think one of the things that makes uh, Dickens' character, Mrs. Jellybee in Bleak House, right? Um, such an <laughs> enduring, the worst, yeah, just such a the weighty worst character, person. Right? Uh, uh, Yes, is that she gives charities to missions in Africa while not attending to the suffering of her own family or, or neighborhood or community, and so you know I think that this is just fuel to your fire, Antony, about how you know impartial giving can often be uh, not just an um, undesirable thing, but an affirmatively bad thing to the extent that it comes at the expense of what uh, you describe as partial, uh, partial giving. So.
0: Yes, I like the idea of that. That a little partiality is okay because I think it it helps steer us away from those kinds of people who are all for humanity and very much against individual people. Um, and so I I think I think we all feel that this letter writer um, is an admirable person and and doing the right thing. And that's it for the Ephesus. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appia and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethesis.